Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Policy Forum pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sue Regan. We're a production of PolicyForum.net based at Australia's leading graduate policy school, Crawford School of Public Policy. If you're looking to develop your public policy career, check out our wide range of degrees and short courses. Just go to crawford.anu.edu.au slash study and you'll find all the information there. This week on the pod, we're carrying on our special series on Australia's bushfires, which continue to burn across large parts of the nation. Over the last week, our special In Focus section on Policy Forum has published some great analysis from leading experts on a wide range of issues, from water contamination to tipping points in the Earth system. Do check it out. You can find it at policyforum.net. Over the last couple of weeks on the pod, we've looked at some of the environmental and human costs of the fires uh, and talked about what ideal and likely policy outcomes might be. But this week, we're going to take a look at how the fires are affecting Australia's Indigenous peoples and what policymakers might learn from First Nations people about how to better manage fires in the future. Not far from where we're recording here in Canberra, the town of Mogo on the New South Wales coast suffered extensive damage in the bushfires. On 31st of December, a blaze tore through the town, leaving it much a bit destroyed, five members of the Mogo Aboriginal Land Council homeless, uh, and the whole of the Yuan community uh, was affected and is mourning for their land. Since the fires, the community has been concerned about several protected indigenous sites between Golaga and Mumbula Mountain being wiped out, and indigenous people of the region have begun to raise their voices about the value of cultural burning practices and the need to look after the country. So today, we want to talk about the unique sense of grief that Aboriginal people feel in the wake of the bushfires and have a discussion about how we can create better policies that take this experience into consideration and which respect the special relationship that Aboriginal people have with the land. To get to the bottom of these questions, we have two fantastic panellists with us in the studio today. Dr. Annick Thomason, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the ANU Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research. She is the primary investigator of Sea Change, which is a grassroots research action project developed in collaboration with MOGO and Batemans Bay local Aboriginal land councils. And we have Dr. Virginia Marshall, who is the inaugural Indigenous postdoctoral fellow with the Australian National University's School of Regulation and Global Governance, RegNet, and the Fenner School of Environment and Society. She's also a practicing lawyer and duty solicitor. Hello, Virginia. Yuridul Marang. Muradri, good morning. And hello, Anik. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. 
The bushfires have wiped out homes, taking the lives of people and countless animals, uh, devastating the landscape and the indigenous sites uh, it is home to. I wonder if we can start by really getting your insights on how indigenous communities have been affected by the terrible events of the last couple of months. Well, I think um, as an Indigenous woman, uh, it's really uh, the silence about what is happening to Aboriginal people across the country that is most telling. And this is something similar to when I wrote my thesis on water and the whole media uh, response was about farmers and about pastoralists and about mining. And it seems very similar and unfortunate that we only of late have been talking about Indigenous coal fire burning. But uh, I know we were both affected in the area that we live, both fires on uh, the north and fires on the south of us, that uh, the media outlets said nothing about Aboriginal communities. And there was very little on the TV about affected communities. So I think the silence that I've seen in water and water rights and, and the drought, um, most tellingly, has been silent. So it's only of late that we've started to really tune in to what we've known for tens of thousands of years uh, about Indigenous fire farming. And Anik, you know, let's try and get beyond that silence. What has the impact been on Indigenous communities? Well, of course, like I cannot give a perspective from a well, from an indigenous perspective because I'm not indigenous myself but um my my friends and colleagues at Mogul um I've been extremely affected by the fires and oh, at the moment they're still they are trying to come with what happened to them the community is really strong um but there's a lot of trauma and with the discussions I've had with people in the community it's at the moment, it's what happened in Mogo itself and, and to the family members and, and things like that. But I think with the weeks and months to come, when they go back on country um, and like witness the impact of that fires, it's going to be, again, more grief and, and more devast yeah, devastating feelings, really. Um, it's not over. And I think what you've said too, um, the people that I've talked to through community, uh, whether it's Bermagui or in any parts of the south, co uh, south coast of Australia, is that um, most Aboriginal people aren't insured. So mm. the house is uninsured. So where does the money come from? Um, how do you rebuild? Uh, and I know this affects also non-Aboriginal people. But for Aboriginal people, um, it's very different on how they actually got to even have a house, uh, seeing, you know, we, we've got the worst health in Australia, we've got the lowest incomes and the lowest opportunities. So uh, that's really some, some issue that we should be talking about in the media. How do Aboriginal peoples rebuild? Because when we talk about the community, and I know when I studied um, sociology, people will get, understand this, is that we talk about the community, but we don't talk about who is in that community. You know, we're talking about non-Indigenous people, are we talking about just in that particular town? Um, you know, Aboriginal people have been in these towns, especially in the South Coast, for thousands and tens of thousands of years. And they're not as mobile because they're there on country, as Anika said. So what happens to Aboriginal people who can't afford to rebuild? Mm. We haven't really been talking about that in Australia either. And how do you think the experience of the 
bushfires is being felt differently by Indigenous people compared to non-Indigenous people? Well, I, my my heart goes out to all of the the people that I've seen on TV, whether it's Malakuta, um, whether it's uh, other parts of Australia. You know, it's deeply grieving. But for us, um, it, it's generational, and this spans across. You know, as I said, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. So we have the impact, as you've pointed out, with the sites. So the sites damage, uh, which is uh, irreversible. Uh, in a lot of areas, but you've got to also remember that the ecosystems itself with all the animals and the plants, that's our medicines, that's our bush foods, our bush tucker, um, the animals totemically, uh, how we relate, you know, the, the, whether it's the, the small wallabies, the kangaroos, the echidnas, you know, those uh, animals uh, are our totems. So while we might be seeking to have those animals listed as endangered uh, or nearly extinct in some circumstances, but those uh, relationships are much deeper and much longer than any other Australian living in this country. Yeah. Um, you know, as you were saying, the bushfires have affected many communities. But I thought we could focus on one for now, which is Mogo. And it's a, I understand it's the centre of the Aboriginal population in that area. Um, and in my introduction, one that has been very particularly badly hit. Um, <clears throat> Annick, I understand you've been meeting with members of that community and rangers. Can you give us a bit of a picture of the situation there now? Very, very small picture, but... Um the the communities seem like have been like looking after each other a lot. Um, the boomerang center because what happened? One of the hub of the community at Mogo has been the Mogo local Aboriginal land council, and and this has been totally destroyed in the fire. So it now has temporary office in the boomerang um, center, which is not too far from. Um, the center of Mogo and the community gathers there and they've been receiving a lot of um, donations from from everywhere really um, material donations perishables and also food for the wildlife because I think one of the things that they're trying to do at the moment is teaming up to be able to feed the animals that are left like the, those who survived are mostly without food so that's really another um, disaster in the making but the community yeah seems Strong, but you know the do whatever it is, roller coasters. Do people feel supported there at the moment? I mean, they were really happy. Like you know, they felt the love of like all, the, the attentions that they got from yeah people who decided to donate to help the community and everything. At the same time, they 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 they're really angry about what happened. I know my colleagues, um, rangers, they. They've been talking for years to revive the cool burning practices, and there's been a lot of hurdles for that. First, um, the work of the rangers is really on, like, not funded enough. Some of their work is voluntary, and the the cool burning practices would have been quite beneficial. They couldn't even do it because it's a little bit too late. The season has been too dry, so they couldn't practice it this year. They were they were planning to start this year to do it, but they are doing a lot of work before that, like cleaning, like. Removing uh, weeds, restoring creeks and and watersheds, and and so making country healthier. Um, so that's work that's really important and need more support. But then you know that being underfunded and 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 things like that. And when you see what happened, Mogo apparently hasn't 
burned very often, or if ever. So um, it's considered a very green little patch of paradise, really. And and now it's been completely devastated. But the yeah, the family, uh, the communities holding it together um but there's going to be a lot of need for yeah trauma uh, support and things like that and probably not just any trauma support something that's culturally relevant as well um so i'm not quite sure how much of this is available because well that's right and and i always remember my time in uh, naruma and in the south coast because i was instructing solicitor on a, a what was a landmark case going to be at the time and uh we saw that you know when you took uh witness testimony that it's a very strong fishing community and they've also been devastated by um people who have then by fisheries, uh, been uh, receiving penalties and penalties that are up to $10,000 and also imprisonment. So I think this is really like a double whammy. The communities are dealing with the way that their knowledge and their practices are penalised, such as customary fishing, uh, and that is not talked about in the same way as we talk about these issues with the bushfires. And now they've received this, um, now the bushfire season that didn't really have to happen. And we're also saying from a non-Indigenous side with the ex-fiery commissioners that wanted to meet with the Prime Minister and uh, couldn't even get an appointment, and this is um, public knowledge, and also um, going through what uh, current fire chiefs and communities have been really putting up with is why hasn't land and water management, and this includes the fisheries as well, why isn't it valued? Why aren't Aboriginal peoples' knowledges valued? And this comes back to, you know, what I say, we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to really get down to why we really don't see Aboriginal people as the first Australians. And we say that when people greet an Aboriginal person, and, and many of us in, in hearing this today will understand as they say, well, what part are you? Well, you don't look Aboriginal. Um, oh, but you live in Canberra or you live in, you know, some other township or Melbourne or Dubbo, but you know, you know, you don't really look. And, and then you, you sort of get compounded by that as well. So not only is your identity compounded um, with these um, responses, but it's also during the bushfire where you could say, if I had have had combined our knowledge with uh, sci- other scientific knowledge, because it is Indigenous science, then we might have had a different outcome. And, and as all the fire chiefs have said currently, they did the backburning, right? Some crazy people out there have been saying, well, let's have more dams. Well, we know, and as a water expert, I know that if you don't have rain, it's no point of having a dam. And we've got all the dams that we need at the moment anyway. Um, So if the government are looking for jobs, uh, please don't build more dams. Uh, We can construct other things. But it's, again, what does Australia need? Where do we go for that information? First Australians. And That's the do you whole think paradigm shift. The um, you know the the scale of the bushfires will draw more attention to well, it has. it has land management practices absolutely. So, but and, but yeah. is it going to be valued? And this yeah. is one thing one of my students said um, when they came away from the National Fire Stick Alliance conference, and this was a whole combining of community people and non Indigenous people. And when those cool burnings were provided as examples, living practical examples, um, there were some people that said, "Oh, good, we'll take that knowledge and then we'll just you know <laughs> use that in our shire council." 
but without Aboriginal people. And as Anix pointed out, you need Aboriginal rangers and they need employment. Um, it's not just volunteering. Uh, Aboriginal people volunteer in a whole range of services and bushfire services, but that knowledge needs to also to have uh, some recognition. You know, when we value people's time as a consultant, we pay them. Uh, but Aboriginal people seem to say, well, and I know those years where they held, you know, a barbecue, for example, and they'd get all of us there to really suck our brains, you know, to try and get as much information as possible. But we're not bought by barbecue these days. And, and that's really an important point. Yeah. So that knowledge needs to really have value, not only uh, generational value, but it needs to have uh, in-kind or monetary value as well. And I think that's the important part. We need to converse about this as a nation. I, I think that's a good point because <clears throat> at the moment you see a lot more people like commenting, um, yeah, like why Aboriginal people are not more involved, like uh, we need to return to this. And so a lot of people seems to be supporting um, Indigenous school burning and Indigenous knowledge and stuff like that. But the thing is, what I'm afraid of is that People don't realize how unfunded it is. Uh, uh, like, and also not only that, but uh, the legal and political policy um, hurdle that they have to go through to be able to do these practices. And so, I'm afraid that this enthusiasm—if Aboriginal people can't pick it up straight away and prove that this is what's working—which will take years because it's been so interrupted and um, altered. The country has changed a lot with all the damage that has been done by all these developments. Well, that's so, the Murray-Darling Basin, isn't uh, it? It's been changed. It, it's been diverted. It, it's had uh, all of the um, uh, really important uh, material yeah. uh, taken, uh, you know, trees, and it's also um, been hugely silted. So, you know, we've seen these rivers change and where they want to pipe water to the north and the north to the south. And Bob Catter was on today about <laughs> having more dams. So there's a, a whole nonsensical um, issues. But the one thing that I think in this too is human rights. We have yes. a whole range of United Nations frameworks out there for climate change. And we're not, we, we're really hesitant as a nation to talk about that in depth. Um, not just recognise that it's climate collapse and a climate crisis. Uh, we need to see this whole perspective of the bushfires in a new light. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, and this is going to be the new norm for us, this is it. So I've said this on the water scale and I said that we will be having a lot of communities without water when I heard the other day. Um, that's a fact. You know, there's, there's an increasing number of, I think, about 50 communities that are going to be without water. And I saw that through um, the example in California. So we need to talk about human rights. Um, my drafting of the response for the Universal Periodic Review um, on the weekend, I finalised that and I saw that, you know, the government's response is that they've got an Aboriginal Human Rights Commission, that's enough. Mm. That was their default position on saying, well, we're doing everything. And by the way, the Australian Human Rights Commissioner, who is now June Oscar, uh, is responsible for all of those other issues, going from intellectual property to any other thing that you can actually list. Is is the government showing signs of listening to no, the challenges? Absolutely not. not yeah. uh, and I mean, as a, as Aboriginal people, we know that there's consultations, but when those consultations happen, um, there's nothing done. There's no action. And as Anik pointed out, and I've been involved in a lot of volunteer projects in West Kimberley for Green Army uh, and also projects funded by the Commonwealth and by the state of Western Australia, but the Green Army's gone. A lot of these fundings, as Anika said, are, are cyclical. 
Uh, when the government's changed, they scrap those things and then they put in a new system. So, you know, six months to a year is what Aboriginal peoples are used to. And you can't get good staff and you can't get good continuity in mentoring and you can't get community's heart involved in it because we've seen all of this before, decades and decades before. And that response is not uh, an intelligent response. You know, we need now to start working together. Is is it one community? Are we part of that community? I don't see it at the moment. And I'd like to be because I feel that there are a lot of very good minds there and, and there are individuals who have goodwill, but as a, a national conversation and an Australian government response, there isn't. Let's take a, a break here. Um, when we come back, we'll uh, have a look at uh, indigenous burning practices, which we've touched on already, and we'll dig into some of these policy solutions. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, I'm here with our expert panel, Virginia and Anik. Uh, in part one, we had a look at the effects of the bushfires, uh, particularly on Indigenous communities. But in this part, I want to look at Indigenous burning practices, uh, what they are, how they help uh, and how they might be uh, incorporated into policy. Over the last few weeks, we've heard a lot about the value of cultural or cool burning. Uh, Virginia, could you tell us a bit more about this practice? Well, these practices now have come to light. And as um, we've talked earlier, a lot of these systems are something that Aboriginal peoples are, are aware of and have been aware of for tens of thousands of years. Now, when we look at those practices, cool burning, it, it, it isn't a hot fire. So a hot fire, in other words, that we've seen on the TV, uh, you know, going right through the, the understory shrubs and right to the crown of the tree. So it's killing off everything because it's so hot. And you can see those images of just oranges going right up to the top of the trees. Um, that is so hot that it destroys everything. Now, what's happened, and people really explain this as a cool burn where you're doing at a time where the wind's got to be right, it's got to also have the, the right time, it's got to be a little bit of uh, dampness, you know, wet, um, and then you burn on those grasses in, in a place that you only want to burn in a small area. So that's the most important thing, that those uh, grasses are burnt and it's a cool burn. So it'll just go around and take all of the weeds away. It'll talk, take some of those grasses, but they'll revive. So those dormant seeds will revive. But the cool burn 
doesn't then go under that hot orange fire to the top of the crowns. Mm. So that's really important. And how does that help us manage fires? Well, it takes all of the things out that most people know that are on the ground that are introduced species. So that's really important to get rid of those in the first place. And also, uh, you know, for example, uh, radiator pines, you know, they'll get burnt completely. Usually with a radiator pine, if you take the top of the crown off of that tree, uh, it'll usually only grow to that height. Um, so it's taking away those things that are really important to clear the weeds, for example. And when you look at Bill Gamage's work at ANU, that he's actually looked into those archive of materials, it says that all of the, the land that um, different settlers saw and uh, observed, that it was a beautiful landscape. Uh, they weren't masses and masses of trees clumped together. It was like a botanical gardens. And that's what we've got to really hold on to, that we could have and can have with these cool burns. And also with water and land management um, that's taken on with an Aboriginal understanding of how that needs to happen for the ecosystems. And those cool burns allow the animals not to be burnt in the fires that we've seen and the koalas distressed and being burnt to death in, in the crowns of those trees, but just to take the introduced species away and to clean up that fuel, that light fuel. I know when I've been involved with National Parks as one of the first Aboriginal discovery ranges that um, we were very hopeful, you know, we, we were very hopeful that th this might be uh, a new start. But even then, our knowledge wasn't uh, valued. So and is cool burning happening today? Oh, cool it? burning's happening all, all across the country. You know, they do it in the Kimberley. They do it in other parts of Australia and Cape York, of course, has um, been a point of conversation recently in the news. So cool burning is a really important part of, of our cleansing, mm. cleansing for the ecosystems, for balance. Um, and again, you know, compared to what we've seen on the TV, um, they're extreme you know, burning everything in its path. Uh, it's just what people are saying is a megafire. But again, we haven't come back to why Aboriginal people have this knowledge, what can it actually do for the rest of Australia and why you need to consult widely and why you need to employ Aboriginal people for these um, really important work that so we need to do. So if there'd been more cool burning uh, on the South Coast... If there had would, been more cool burning since 1788, yeah, and less, there that would be would less been, severity. Absolutely, in the fires, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it, it was because Aboriginal people were seen in that lens, that particular gaze, that they they had nothing to provide. Uh, and then when individuals uh, acknowledged that Aboriginal people, oh, wait on, they do have laws. And then we saw that with Nabalco and Marilpin uh, decision in in the Yongu people, where the judge said, Judge Blackburn, that. I haven't ever seen a, a system of order and law as I've seen and listened to the anthropological report in uh, this particular case for the Yongu people. So that knowledge has been around for a long time, but we haven't valued Aboriginal people. Uh, it's, it's just sort of get, get a bunch of us in, have a talk, have a yarn, and then see you later. And then we develop policy without us. And it's usually choosing the one Aboriginal person who has the most um, you know, the lowest paid job in that organisation or that department that gets to see that and signs off. So we've got to change that thinking. I and think that's, that's what we have at the moment. I, I mean, last uh, Thursday, 
Scott Morrison met with the nation's peak Aboriginal bodies. Well, who's that? Uh, well, uh, there, you the know, peak body was the First Peoples Congress. Yeah. And that was just, that went into administration. That was just left to do what, you know. And we've seen it before with ATSIC, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission. Um, where did all the artwork go, you know? Uh, why was it dismantled when the report said they didn't need to dismantle ATSIC? Um, that was the only platform we had for international um, voices and exchange. So, you know, So how can, happening? you know, if that type of forum isn't really improving communication or engagement with Aboriginal communities, what might improve that communication? A total change in national consciousness. Every individual Australian needs to change in the way that they think about Aboriginal Australia. And we need to not be seen as as stakeholders. And I've said this for many years. Um, We need to be seen as First Nations people in everything. And if you're not going to recognise Aboriginal Australia and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the First Peoples, and I mean with having a legal effect, currently people are saying, let's have recognition but it's a non-legal effect. In other words, there's nothing that flows for, from it that includes legal rights. So it's just saying, I see you there, Sue. I see you there, Anique. That's it. Mm. So we don't get any inclusion into the, the water, the National Water Initiative. We've only got a couple of clauses that are discretionary and they don't hit the mark on economic, cultural or um, commercial. Uh, we, we're the same that in that case with intellectual property. Our knowledge is respected in traditional knowledge. They're not protected. Um, it's only protected if it's a new right, a newly developed form or design. So, you know, across the board, Aboriginal peoples have been demoted to the lowest common denominator in Australia. And, and you know, when they, when they, like, people now wake up and think, like, oh, yes, Indigenous knowledge is going to be our saviour and um, burning practices and... Fisheries practices. Well, fisheries is a bit more complicated, but um, you know, it's it's not only these kind of superficial knowledge. They are really, really important, but this come with an old background that is often dismissed. Like it's we we need a, sh- a complete shift of the way we relate to to the country itself. Like we, it means like some shift for how we think about the economy, how we relate to each other. So it's not it's not just looking for solution or how we mitigate these fires for the futures and, and things like that is how we grow as a country and, and change the whole mentality. Um, but, you know, that's when it affects everybody day-to-day life, it, it takes a little bit more time and more convincing. And people will have also to realize that, as, as Virginia said, like, you know, you go and, and ask um well, consult one person or a few people in the community, often not the right people, because there's, it's people who are being passed on these knowledge are selected for some, for specific reasons in the community. So it's not all the community that shares all the knowledge. So it's very important to respect this, the political system in the community. The, like, so this as well on the top of um, the skills and, and ecological knowledge that people have. So it's, uh, it's going to be listening to people more. What are, you know, I'm going to really press you here on what you think the practical policy steps might be. I mean, to, to unfortunately finish this conversation, now we've mm. heard today about the special relationship that First Nations people have with country, uh, how the fires have affected them 
you know, in uh, in different ways um, and what we might learn from traditional uh, burning practices. But, you know, how do we really pull this together into practical policy steps and what what might your key recommendations be for government or for policymakers? Well, the problem is, and I've worked in uh, state and federal government, that usually the people that are sitting there asking you those questions are non-Indigenous people. And what we have to do, just as any university must do, is to have a critical mass of Aboriginal academics and Torres Strait Islander academics. Uh, we need to have people who are in senior positions that can really bring people together, network, collaborate, and then talk to the government about policy and then bring those communities in that really need to have their voices heard. If we don't have critical mass, uh, we will not go forwards. And there's no excuse not to um, employ Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but we have systems such as identified positions and we have quotas too for people with disability uh, in the same way. We, if, if you treat everybody the same, uh, you're t- treating them with discrimination uh, because, you know, if you want to climb those flight of stairs and you are in a wheelchair, you have to make those provisions and that's law. So what I'm saying, we need to have that consciousness with really having Aboriginal people in the centre of this conversation, employed, senior, that we can discuss. But that really is something that is greatly lacking. Mm-hmm. Policy really needs to be developed over time. We've consulted um, and we've writ- written a lot of submissions, for example, with the Murray-Darling Basin Commission and their, the authority. Uh, there are over, I think, about 450 submissions on the Murray-Darling Basin itself. So what happened to those 450 submissions by Aboriginal people? Um, did they get listened to? Well, nothing's changed. All we hear about is some states that actually want to vacate the intergovernmental agreement. So, you know, those sort of issues are not getting any traction uh, because Aboriginal people aren't listened to. And that's the problem. I think it's too early to really have those conversations about what steps to take. We've given a lot of that information. It's sitting on the shelves of university. Um, it, it's on your computer. You know, a lot of those intergovernmental UN uh, reports from all over the world, from centres of environment, from universities, from private corporations, uh, that, that information is there, but we're not applying it, and that's the failure. Yeah. Anik, your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's... Exactly what Virginia says. And, and, you know, having, not only having, like, I think it's when you get that critical mass that all of a sudden universities and, and government departments then have to realize that it's not only having more Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people within these institutions, but also having these people really having an influence on how we sh- change these universities and these departments. Um, bring new paradigm in because like at the, often what happens is there's more people coming in, but in the end, um, it's more or less business as usual because there's this institutional framework that's pretty, um, inflexible often. And these people are guided by the same policies and, and same rules. And if they are not allowed to make some change to these rules and policies, well, you know, it will be hard to implement any change. We need to trust people to really listen to them and give like the they should have like decision-making power. So I think that's... And we need a yeah. treaty. 
treaties. You know, so, and this, yeah. this is this conversation's happening with Professor uh, McDodson and communities up in the Northern Territory. But you know, treaties can be breached. Look, agreements can be breached. I know that as a lawyer, but it's important to have an agreement, but a conversation before that agreement, which means every town in Australia has a dark history. Every town. It doesn't matter where you take your finger and drop it on the map of Australia. There's a dark side. And that really needs to be talked about. That truth and reconciliation needs to happen. And, and it means that there's no retribution, but people need to know and people need to stand up and have their conversations about these issues. And I think that would really be helpful. You know, when, when we go on and, and we think about these examples, you know, if you're sick, you go to hospital, they don't just bandage up your finger and you say, well, actually, I've just had a heart palpitation. You know, you've got to really understand we need to have that first step and we need to have that that conversation. So I think if we do that, I think it's going to be uh, really opening that space and that would be really wonderful for Australia. And then maybe Ab- Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people would want to celebrate the joint values that we, we hold together. But at the moment... Uh, we're really fractured. We're a fractured Australian society. Even though we've got a lot of love for each other, we're still fractured. You know, we've we've seen in the the last few months a a shift, I think, in the public conversation and public awareness about some of these issues. Do you see that? Uh, And do you think that might lead to greater action and uh, in relation to uh, Indigenous uh, nations' experiences as well? Well, I think it's only at the end of the conversation with the bushfires that we've seen um, the example of cool burning, of Aboriginal peoples really coming to the fore and discussing that knowledge and small uh, stories uh, on the media about bush, you know, bushfires and how that actually can be um, understood with Indigenous fire management. And that is a positive step. However, um, don't underestimate the momentum that we need to actually push through to have this as an ongoing conversation. Uh, it's really an important highlight, but that's not the end. We really need to take that and build on it. And perhaps if we have these conversations more in workshops and conferences that we need to, and also community consultations, that this could actually be um, driven by the Australian people. We've seen a 16-year-old girl, Greta Thunberg, (laughs) has made a huge difference. Uh, She's really awakened young people, people at school, to say there's something wrong with this. Climate change exists. And as I've said before, climate change science is settled. And we know that young people and all people can make a difference. So we need to hold on to this message and we need to push it. That's the most important thing. And if we need to get out there and design a placard and (laughs) go up there to the National Press Club today, you need to do it. Anik, do you think the shift in public views gives a sign for optimism? Well, I feel that like what I what I've seen in the media and like heard um, in the social well look what's happening in the social media is there's certainly some kind of greater awareness and and positive feeling with regards to practice like cool burning and things like that. So I think it, it it's great, but we, as Virginia said, we really need to build on this momentum and also use this opportunity to to show how it sits in a broader context and that is also extremely important and that we I'm really hoping that this disaster will 
be opening that door where people finally start to listen. It's a little bit sad that it took that much, but it might be a shift in thinking, which, yeah, that would be very positive. It would be good for Australia and Australians. Absolutely. Would be good for everybody, yeah. Thank you very much for sharing your insights on what is clearly a very uh, important uh, and uh, uh, a topic that we'll be coming back to on the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Anik. Thank you. And thank you, Virginia. Madangul. Listeners, we really enjoyed today's discussion, but we want to hear what you thought. If you want to share your thoughts, comments or questions with us, please reach out. The best way to do that is to join our podcast group on Facebook. It's easy to find us. Just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. You can also find us on Twitter where we are APPS Policy Forum. That's at Apps Policy Forum. Or send us a message at podcast at policyforum.net. And if you're ready to take a leading role in improving Indigenous policymaking, you might want to check out the Masters of Public Policy specialisation on Indigenous policy and development. You'll learn from leading experts at Crawford School and the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at the Australian National University. You can find out more about the programme and how to apply at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. If you haven't already done so, you might be interested in donating to bushfire-affected communities. Every cent can help. We will leave a list of organisations you might want to donate to in the show notes. And if you like this week's episode, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. You can find Policy Forum Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum Pod. But until then, from me, Sue Regan, cheerio. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.